Bitcoin, the US dollar, Litecoin, the euro, and oh wait, how can we forget gold? Money. The thing that drives this world, for the good or the better, is going through an unprecedented shift like never before. It's becoming truly digital and programmable. Hello everyone and welcome to the Encrypted Podcast. Encrypted is the Middle East's first and largest podcast dedicated to blockchain and crypto assets. I'm your host, Ahmed Bilahi. In this live episode, we did at Jitex with the Future Blockchain Summit. I sit down with Greg Gabriel Abed and Aruba Khalid to discuss the future of programmable money. And we look at this through three lenses, money for the authorities, money for the corporations, and money for the people. I just want to say a huge thank you to the Future Blockchain Summit, Nisha and Stephen, for allowing us to shoot this live episode at Jitex at their booth. It was amazing. Before we start the show, I would like to give a shout out to two of our sponsors, CBX, which is a multinational exchange with clients in over 50 countries. Not only does it have a delightful experience, but it's always a benefit to know personally the founders of CBX who have quite an experienced background in financial markets. And so I place a great faith in the operations and security of this exchange. What's more, CBX regularly has new project listings and many promotions, and just by having an account, you'll be entered into the airdrops program on a weekly basis. So I invite you all to check them out at cbx.one to trade your cryptocurrencies. Second sponsor I want to give a shout out to is Gibral, a blockchain project that focuses on working with institutions and banks to introduce novel techniques of money transfer and value exchange. Gibral engages in Islamic finance as shown by their work on digital sukuk bonds with Il Hilal Bank and their ongoing work with central banks in the region. I'd really like to thank those who've been supporting the show and remember you can support us in any way possible. You can subscribe, rate and review the show and you can share the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. Thank you so much and I really hope you enjoy this episode. So hello everyone, welcome to Encrypted. Encrypted is the Middle East's first and largest podcast dedicated to blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And today we're doing a live podcast, which is great, with the Future Blockchain Summit. And today's episode will all be about programmable money, the future of money, and who are we backing, right? Like there's so many things that's happening in this space. But before I introduce a bit further about the topic, I just want a quick show of hands. Who here has cryptocurrencies? One, two. Only two? Okay, interesting. Come see me after, I'll give away some Bitcoin. <laughs> He Seriously. will do that. <laughs> um, all right. So, all right. Who who has used Bitcoin before? If you don't know, nope. no, I think okay. you should be on this. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Okay. You guys have. All right. Okay. If Bitcoin was regulated, would you use it? Okay. Ew. So there's more yeses. Interesting. Okay. Cool. <laughs> no, that's interesting. All right. So, before I start off the panel, I'd like the guests to introduce themselves. So, go and get. I am Gabriel Abed. I am from the Caribbean island of Barbados. My family's Syrian, so there's some Middle Eastern roots in there. I got into the blockchain world just after finishing a degree in computer science with a major in network security. I started one of the first blockchain companies in the Western Hemisphere. My company, Bit.com, is focused on central bank digital currencies. We were the first company in the world to work with central banks to create a digital version of their national currency. Great, awesome. Okay, 
Hi, I'm Aruba Khalid. I work at the Dubai Future Foundation. I'm part of the research unit in the foundation and I'm an economist as my background. And I'm looking at mostly the way new technologies are impacting different economic sectors, particularly with an interest in the UAE. All right, great stuff. So yeah, we have a really cool panel to talk about this topic. So the reason why we chose this topic is because if we were to look back 11 years ago, what happened? The 2008 financial crisis happened. And then a lot of events happened following that. So Bitcoin came out in 2009. You had a lot of new companies coming in and doing more digital propositions for consumers. What that basically means is you saw the rise of fintech and sort of digital enabled financial applications. Why? Because a lot of people mistrusted banks and institutions. And so, you know, these digital banks that came out actually became sort of a thing. And so as the years sort of went by in the, in the past decade or so, we saw that cryptocurrencies became popular. There was a lot of speculation two, two years back. But after that, what had happened? We saw quite a few big names such as Facebook announcing the Libra coin project, Telegram. I don't know if, who uses Telegram here. They're actually releasing their own coin as well. Kakao, which is the Korean WhatsApp. They're also doing their own blockchain and token as well. You have JP Morgan, the Chinese central bank. They're all issuing their own sort of versions of cryptocurrencies, of course, with different features. And for us, the, the reason why we're doing this is because what are the implications of this, right? The genie's out of the bottle. Bitcoin's out there. It's kind of show to everyone, okay, you know, you know, this thing exists and we could do something with this programmable money. Okay, can we put it into our corporations? Can we use it um, within the central bank? And so the idea is that because the genie is out of the bottle, cryptocurrencies will probably be a thing under the umbrella term of programmable money. And the idea is that, you know, I really want to explore with you guys and debate the implications of money for the corporations, money for the monetary authorities and money for the people, which you explained was all popularized by Andreas Antonopoulos. So, of course, the question that we want to answer so sort of at the end of this panel is, who will you back? Who will win this money war? And what is sound money at the end of the day? So I mentioned programmable money. Gabriel, could you explain what programmable money is? Well, programmable money is the ability to actually interface with a, a currency form via a software type mechanism. So when we, when we hear the concept of programmable money, this usually dictates that someone with a development background can participate in the interaction, the mechanisms of how a dollar can function, and we can start applying different algorithms to this type of currency mm. system. So programmable money, one of the first major and popular programmable monies that we heard of today is something like Bitcoin. It's the ability to interface with Bitcoin using software. This had previously never been seen before because money traditionally was kept in a closed loop environment. It was maintained on centralized servers and only organizations like financial institutions mm -hmm. such as banks had the ability to manipulate these types of systems. Mm -hmm. Now today, what we are seeing is the ability for any developer, anyone with a software background to start talking to these systems. And the cool part about programmable money is you can program it to be interoperable in different environments. Yeah. Can you explain what that means? Interoperable uh, in different Interoperability is the ability for, let's just say, something like Central Bank of Barbados issues a digital dollar using the blockchain. That dollar can potentially talk to Bitcoin. 
Whereas if we have something like cash or fiat currency, cash is something that is not interfaceable other than when I see you person to person, I can hand that cash to you. And that's the limitations of cash. Whereas if the central bank were to use a technology like blockchain, mm. that solution has the ability to be interfaced with another system that lives within the IT realm. And therefore, you can automate the process of things like exchanging, of mm. things like trading, of things like being able to send and receive, and they can now be broken down to a level where there are terms applied to this type of system using programming languages. All right, awesome. So I want to take sort of a theoretical approach and then a practical approach. So Aruba, you wrote a paper around this concept of digitizing fiat currency and how that actually affects cash and cryptocurrencies going forward. Could you explain sort of what you're writing about, the reason for it, and what your findings were? So like you mentioned earlier, when you were giving the introduction to the panel, that after 2008 and the financial crisis, there was a bit of distrust in the existing financial system, international financial system. The subsequent bailouts of large companies that had not performed that well was kind of seen as a bit of a, that something had gone wrong. Yeah. So the development of financial technologies and Bitcoin around the same time as 2008, 2010 is argued to have been caused by the mistrust in the international financial system. So more recently, however, there have been a few interactions between politics and money that kind of sparked my interest in this particular yeah. topic. So I think in 2016, when the Brexit vote happened and the value of the pound fell more than what 20% at the time, yeah. it was kind of... It was kind of strange that a very political decision made by a sort of political motivation could suddenly wipe off the asset values of hundreds and thousands of people that might own property in the UK or that might be doing business in and out of the UK. So the exchange rate risk might have wiped out a yeah. huge significant part of their business solely because of a political decision. In 2017, the Venezuelan currency crisis was caused as part of the inability of the Venezuelan government to manage the value of the Venezuelan currency in the Bolivar. So all of these things happening, sort of, they were like mini financial crises yeah. in different parts Something of the what world. Something happened in Greece as well. Exactly. Same thing in, a couple of years ago. Exactly, yeah. So similar to what happened in Greece as well. So it kind of sparked my interest to see, is there an argument for separating political decisions or political motivations mm. from economic outcomes. Interesting. Because if the supply and demand of your particular commodity has not changed, why does the value need to be wiped out because of a mm. political decision that which is not particularly, which yeah. is not necessarily relevant for your particular market? I think that started off my interest. I started doing some research into the interactions between monetary policy and digital assets. Okay. And then I think around the same time, the first central bank digital currency came to my awareness. I wasn't aware that actually countries had been looking at that, like forward-looking economies mm. had been looking at digitizing central bank currencies much earlier on, which then kind of forms the thesis of the report. Cool, great. And so Gabe, you actually have created or helped central banks and governments to create their own versions of digital, central bank digital currencies. Can you explain that process? How did you do that? What were the learnings? I mean, you've basically implemented programmable money. Tell us about it. So around 2013, 2014, mm. a company that I had co-founded called Bit, we started experiencing problems from the traditional banking sector when it came to actually accessing banking. 
and we had we had got the sign of approval from our regulators to pursue our business model, but I found it very unfair that the banks were not giving us access to their environment. And I didn't have a background in economics or finance. I was just your average IT guy. And I started looking at cash as an avenue of how could this system be peer-to-peer and accessible and a utility for public good, but limited in its nature from a digital perspective. So I came up with the concept of why don't we just digitize cash? And Mm -hmm. I proposed this to our central bank at the time and our company, Bit, started heading down the road of building out this ecosystem. And it took several years uh, to get to the point of where we are right now. And it was only until earlier, a couple of months ago, that we actually successfully contracted with a central bank. Which uh, one? The Eastern Caribbean Central Bank. The Eastern Caribbean, okay. Which is a a currency union of eight islands. Mm -hmm. So they're one of the larger currency unions in the world. And they went down the road of, of exploring and piloting a national digital dollar. And this has since taken off around the world and has become a phenomenon across central banks where nearly every single central bank that we know of today is exploring creating a national version of their dollar digitally. Mm. So it was quite a long process. It was a team of dozens of people, 50 plus persons, made up of compliance, finance, IT, you name it from a financial technology perspective, that came around and concreted around this idea of how do we create a central bank digital currency responsibly, securely, and something that could become prevalent in all of society. You see, it's not just as simple as issuing a digital dollar in a secure environment. You need to interface that digital dollar with the financial institutions, whether it be a bank or a credit union. And then at the end user, the citizen level, you need to have the ability to spend that digital dollar. So we created the entire ecosystem. That means like digital wallets. Digital wallets, the ability to pull out my phone and anywhere you can spend cash, I can spend my digital cash. And we had to recreate that entire environment. And it took over six years to build this entire solution. So that that took six years for eight islands who came together. No, that took six years to build out a solution. Okay. And uh, over implementation, the implementation is currently still underway. Ah. Uh, We we are live on the island of Barbados where tens of of thousands of users and and merchants are actively utilizing the system to pay for their goods and services. I can now go to Barbados with my mobile phone and spend Barbados digital dollars at a coffee shop. And this is now happening globally around 40 central banks around the world of 186 central banks are currently on their way to piloting or or exploring central bank digital currencies. So programmable money is coming, whether we like it or not, Mm. with all monetary authorities. And it's a very lengthy process. The central bank is one of the most conservative organizations or entities that we have in our society. And they take their time from a development perspective, from a deployments perspective, from exploring what are the risks, what are the intricacies of such a issuance cycle, what damage can it do to our society, what are the pros and what are the cons. Yeah. And these questions take months, if not years, to answer. To us, mm. the young and the, and, and the quick, it's something where in our minds we say, oh, this can happen in a day. But to a monetary authority, yeah. they need to be responsible when they're dealing with this because this is, after all, an entire society that can be affected by these decisions. All right, interesting. Another um, re- 
Yeah, go on. Another reason for the sort of impetus for adopting financial currencies, of course, is the fact that the digital economies can do them much faster, mm. but also can't be ignored that in a way, digital currencies that were outside of the central bank system did threaten existing government authorities or state authorities that were responsible for fiat currency. So if you were able to trade, a large share of the global economy depended on digital currencies that would kind of reduce the relevance of fiat currencies. Yeah. Therefore, it would take a forward-looking central bank to adopt mm. digital currency, but also rightly so, given the fact that digital currencies could threaten the use of the fiat currency. Yeah. So in a way, the incentive for them to look into it was double mm. of just well, this was increasing when we, efficiency. When, when we were doing central bank digital currencies, this was pre-Libra. So from a from an undermining perspective, that wasn't the thought process. The thought process around adoption for the central banks in our region came from live monetary policy being mm. able to be implemented real time. Yeah. The advantages that it can bring mm. to society, banking the unbanked. Remember, in some of these developing nations, there's a major part of society that don't have access to traditional banking services. You have people that are left out and ignored from the ability to have normal banking, day-to-day -day services in the banking world. And now with something like your smartphone, I'm all of a sudden banked. I'm part of a modern financial system. And this has massive implications to societies. This has massive growth to GDP. Yeah. This is able to take someone that previously was not part of the formal infrastructure of the monetary ecosystem and to bring them into the fold. So yeah. that was one of the winning points that we saw initially. And now with things like Libra, private corporations issuance of currency, now this is threatening and undermining <laughs> central bank digital, uh, so, central bank currencies. But before we get into Libra, there's one thing I wanted to actually point out. So if they were to central banks digitize their currency and then if it's all digitally native, because what would happen is the role for banks essentially is that banks are there so that they take money from the central bank and they give it to the people. If this is all digitally native, are banks required? In the, in, in the future. Excellent question. Well, that, that's a loaded, that's a very right? loaded question. <laughs> because the, can't the central bank just create a, a division depends, or two? And it then depends just... on what you're looking at. Remember, banks have a very useful, uh, a very big usefulness yeah. in society. The ability to, what's the word I'm looking for? R remember, banks are a major part of, of where the money printing process comes from. Yeah. Broad money is traditionally responsible under the bank's supervision. They're the ones that, in theory, through loans and mortgages and other sorts mm. of banking activities create money for society, which in of itself helps society grow in a way. Well, now, they kind of, you know, screwed us over many times <laughs> in, the, in the past century. Well put. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So to go to Libra and talk about that, who, who has heard of Libra? I assume everyone has heard of Libra. Would you guys use Libra? No? No one would use Libra. Wow. Okay. Would you, would you guys use Libra? Currency, you see, money is based on its usefulness. Where can I spend it? Yeah. What's the stability? Can I trust it? And to answer that question, if Libra came out and had worldwide adoption, and I was able to spend it online or spend it offline, mm. spend it anywhere in the world, then yes, I would use Libra. <laughs> 
So, it, and that goes for the end user. Can yeah. I receive a payment for my goods or services? If I'm in an island or a country, let's just say I'm in Nigeria as an example, yeah. and someone in Timbuktu wants to pay me, but I'm unable to access that payment, I might turn to a monetary solution that's more conducive to my ability to be paid and then to turn around and can I pay for my utilities in life? Can I pay my gas bill? Mm. Can I pay my staff? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, you will see adoption. And because Facebook is the largest social network in the world with 2 billion plus people, there's a high probability that the adoption curve is going to be great. It's going to be, for, it, for mm. the least, Libra is going to be used more than some of the country's currencies in this world. At least more than a third of the countries in this world will have, Libra will have a greater adoption rate than them because of its yeah. sheer magnitude of its size and its prevalence in our current day society. Of course, so I, I definitely buy those points, but Aruba, you saw everyone shaking their heads, right? Um, and uh, from your research- I'm, I'm completely you know. <laughs> with you. Yeah. I wouldn't personally choose to use a Facebook digital currency, but ideally I wouldn't want to use a credit card. It just happens to be extremely practical because how mm. else am I going to buy something from yeah. Amazon UK? Unfortunately, I think the same thing as Gabe pointed out was going to happen with the adoption of Libra. We might not actively choose to want to use it, but given that it's going to just become so increasingly practical for us to buy goods and services, to communicate between different economies, it's, it's going to be adopted not as like out of an intention of our choice, but out of sort of a necessity, yeah. like how we use credit cards. Yeah. And also, although we consider that, okay, the privacy aspect of Facebook having access to all of our financial data wouldn't be as attractive for a lot of people. But if you think about it, Google and Facebook and Apple, they all store a lot of our data already. But do we take that step to, oh, I'm not going to use GPS anymore because I don't want them to know where I am. If on paper, this sounds like a very scary situation that one company is able to track physically where I am at any given point of my mm. day. But the utility of GPS just prevents people from wanting to yeah. protect their privacy as much. Yeah, convenience is, privacy is extremely, boils down to usefulness, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. Your privacy is really sacred, but then so is mm. the utility of everything you need so to then, do. So then if, if we're talking about programmable money, can we program it in a way where it's useful, but the, the data is private to the end user? And <laughs> well... I think this I, is a good tech question. <laughs> well, that depends on, on who's creating the technology That's platform. Yeah. So what we've seen from uh, Libra is that they're coming out with a federation. Mm. And this federation, in some form or another, will have some privacy built in for the end user. Yeah. But does that mean that the federation themselves don't have the ability to eavesdrop and monitor all transactions? Now, is Libra going to be as private as a cryptocurrency like Monero? Definitely not. It's not designed that way. The principles of Libra are not around that of privacy, whereas the principles of Zcash, Monero, Pivx, their principles are around privacy. So we have to consider that. What's the underlying agenda here? Is it financial inclusion? Is it financial inclusion of privacy? And at the end of the day, we're not going to see a data company yeah. give up their ability <laughs> yeah. to not have more data, right? Yeah, although they claim that they will not try and eavesdrop and, and not and sell one, it on. And one day you wake up and a new user agreement comes out that says, good morning, we've changed our user terms of an agreement. Nobody reads it. <laughs> no one reads no it. Gonna read it. 
but you now know, have these more, these, these much more restrictions, yeah. this much more limited access, and this, this much more controls. By the way, we're now yeah. tracking every single one of your transactions, and we know that you just bought a bottle of milk and a coffee. So it's just interesting. If you, you guys should definitely see how early companies have started actually tracking data, like Target, which is like one of the biggest yeah, yeah. wholesalers in the US, actually did this sort of decades ago. So Aruba, I have a question for you. So typically for something to go mainstream, there has to be regu Wide. regulation, right? Yeah. And all the regulators, most of the regulators worldwide do not like Libra. France and Germany have said, you guys are not coming to Europe at all. Congress are trying to get Zuckerberg to testify. He's like not replying to them. You know, this Libra thing actually might not happen. And PayPal as well. So Libra has like 27 founding members in their foundation. PayPal on Friday literally just left the foundation. They're like, we, we don't want to be part of this anymore. Because Nobody knows the reason why. Maybe they want to create their own coin in the future. We don't know, but... Uh, you're putting that out there now. Yeah. So they... So, I'm sure they thought of it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they thought of it. So for, for, do you think that, because you work in the government, you see how things are implemented on that, on that capacity. Do you think that even though there's so much regulatory obstacles, will they achieve what they want to achieve? Will they actually get there, do you think? Mm -hmm. I think that regulators obviously are extremely skeptical of Libra mm. or private sector digital currencies. However, I think as we've seen with previous technological revolutions or technological advancements, even if regulators want to take a hard stance against mm. them to protect consumer rights or protect data privacy, for example, if the technology is innovating itself so fast, they can't really stand in its way. So they can try to protect their citizens by introducing laws and regulations, such as the GDPR that was introduced last year by... Yeah. What is GDPR for those who don't? GDPR was the General Data Protection Regulation. Mm. It was introduced across the Eurozone for all digital companies to provide consumers with an exact breakdown of which data they are and are not allowed to yeah. store. And to make them completely accountable for any potential privacy breaches. So as everybody must be aware of the Cambridge Analytica scandal that happened last year, it was almost difficult for regulators to bring Facebook to the courts because laws around that kind of usage of data weren't yeah. even written. Yeah. So you can write down those laws, but you still can't really prevent the technology mm. from, even if Libra, for example, is completely sort of barred off and from a regulatory standpoint, if the technology continues innovating itself, other companies will refine the process. They yeah. will find like a more transparent way of introducing the same thing. Yeah. So it's just like the adoption of Bitcoin, let's say. Maybe it couldn't fulfill entirely what it was supposed to mm. from the initial concept. But other digital currencies did come around that yeah. addressed those differences. Mm -hmm. And regulators have not been able to stop them. They have to accept the fact that technology is innovating itself at a very fast pace. Because regulation is only as good as its ability to be enforced. Exactly. So, so yeah. the thing is, what, what's really interesting about corporations and governments, typically corporations have huge amount of money. Governments are always in debt. Corporations, particularly banks, they could you know lobby government whenever they want, especially when they want something. Do you think the race between sort of corporation money, private money issued by corporations and digital money issued by central banks, 
do you think that the scale will actually weigh more towards the corporations because because they have access to so many people and they have lobbying power and they have all these different things that the government doesn't have and because there's no regulation as well do you think they could sort of really like grab this opportunity firsthand and then the government's come in later well i i would say this we talked about usefulness yeah and it becomes a question of what's useful the next important thing to understand is we're entering a new age of where the internet can be constituted as the largest country in the world we need to stop thinking of commerce within borders because it has changed and the internet has changed that concept but 5% of trade only happens online so 95% of trade worldwide still happens physically yes so that's nice. that, that could be yeah. one argument however we have to remember that we're entering a new age and before there was never really the interaction of of a end user to have the ability to have movement of money yeah. without going through regulated entities yeah and what we're seeing right now is with the advent of programmable digital decentralized mm. currencies you're having this new as you called it a, a war on money that is occurring and i don't think it's necessarily one beating out the other i think it becomes a case of what is useful to the end user yeah what becomes as you rightfully put what allows for the more innovative solution to exist mm -hmm. and we're eventually going to see a case of where the end user is empowered to make a free decision to participate in open systems something like bitcoin regulation cannot dictate the end user's ability to participate yeah no one can dictate who can participate within the bitcoin ecosystem i can choose to download a wallet if i want to or not or to create a cryptographic address and to send and receive bitcoin without a single man woman or child in this world being able to stop me and that is a new concept that yeah. we have never seen before now with the advent of corporation based money and with the advent of internet based corporations you're seeing something like libra become prevalent because of the lacking ability for regulators in one jurisdiction to enforce in a cross border jurisdiction so what we're going to end up seeing is a rise of multiple corporations endeavoring to create new innovation around the financial market and what we are going to see with an absolute certainty is the disruption of financial markets the concept of central banking and of itself is being challenged today do we need a centralized monetary authority to create the responsible frameworks to allow society to have a functioning monetary system and this question right now for the first time in the last 50 years is becoming a daily asked question because of things like the money of the people bitcoin and digital currencies are decentralized libra and jp coin mm -hmm. money of the corporations and now central banks themselves are innovating themselves with central bank digital currencies so it really comes down to one simple answer what is useful to that consumer online yeah is what is going to win this war that so, is coming i mean i'm happy we transition to money for the people so currencies like bitcoin monero i mean whichever one you want to use they're amazing in what they actually provide but the issue is it's very difficult for everyone to actually use it i mean we just did a poll here and not many people actually use cryptocurrencies and because of that do you guys think that sort of the concept of money for the people is just a fad for now and then corporations will just 
sort of takeover because it's very hard for Bitcoin to actually be very user-friendly. It still I, isn't. I think the answer to this question lies in your previous question, whether it's a war between currencies of private sector companies or between governments. It's really going to depend on which one do you trust more. So okay. in countries where their trust in the central bank and the government is really, really high, you're absolutely happy to use the central bank digital currency because you know that the monetary policy being implemented by the central bank is fair, it's transparent, you trust it. It's not hurting your business. It's not some kind of obstacle in, in you processing your daily payments. However, if you're living in a jurisdiction where you don't trust the central bank to make or the government to make the right or make completely transparent decisions and maybe, for example, what happened in Venezuela, maybe not be able to protect you. So one day you have a fully thriving business and the next day your entire profit margins wiped out because of a random monetary policy decision mm. that came from an authority that you didn't trust you're going to be more tempted to use digital currencies that are run by the private sector because yeah. the lack of trust in the central authority is what's going to support the adoption of non-central bank digital currencies. So like you mentioned mm. in, like earlier on, that the lack of trust in the financial system around 2008, yeah. 2010, after the crisis, may have been the impetus to driving yeah. mm. the adoption of financial technologies. Yeah. And similarly, maybe in certain countries, people really, really trust the government and they're happy to use the central bank digital currency. So they're going to win that war there. But in other regions where people don't, mm. unfortunately, that might be already what we're seeing in a lot of cases where in certain parts of sub-Saharan Africa, for example, the use of Bitcoin or the use of digital currencies is really, really strong. Yeah. Because that's a way for them to put faith in something that's not necessarily a central bank. I, I would say this. It's absolutely not a fad. As a matter of fact, I, I think that if we look in the last... You know, I, I've been around the Bitcoin world in, since 2010. Mm. And 2010, 2011, 12, 13, 14... If I told anyone in this room about Bitcoin, I've never heard this word. Today, I can walk around to this crowd and at least 10% of the people in this room have heard of Bitcoin. And that is ever growing. Mm. Remember, this is an open, accessible, zero restriction system that is set on, there are preset rules that are not driven by centralized man. And that has merits to certain people. Mm. Maybe those persons who don't like the world of inflation-based currencies, where a monetary authority can keep printing. Maybe it has implications to those that are going through a case of not trusting their particular central bank for whatever yeah. reason or another. The, at the end of the day, you have a system that doesn't care whether we like it or not. It exists, and it exists based on principles of mathematics. Mm. And the math around something like Bitcoin is pure. It's not influenced by a single entity. It's influenced by a consensus-driven algorithm. I think that's part of the innovation, but it's also part of the problem because people of the for right now, previous Ahmed, generations don't understand it. Yeah. And yeah. only because it's complex. And a big part of society actually don't understand what, mo what money means, what money is. And that has nothing to do with Bitcoin. Yeah. It has to do with lacking education of people. And I think that what Bitcoin has done to people like myself 
who were just techies before, has forced us yeah. to start learning about, oh, what's inflation? What's deflation? Yeah. What, what does it mean for monetary policy to exist? And that level of education is now something that is yeah. a forced conversation. Cryptocurrencies have forced the conversation. And those of us who have been enlightened, like Plato's allegory of the cave, we have now seen the light. Yeah. And once you have seen the light, you can't unsee the truth. <laughs> See the light. And that's where we are right now. And it's only a matter of time before everybody in this room, every single person gets burnt by a centralized monetary authority. It's only a matter of time, my friend, because humans are greedy and that's they will true. make mistakes and they're always gonna protect the interests of the 1%. There's never a case in society yeah. where we have protected the 99%. Bitcoin is designed to protect the 99%. Whether mm -hmm. we like it or not, the subject of cryptocurrencies and open monetary policy driven by consensus-driven algorithms yeah. is going to happen. And it's happening today. We may not be educated right now in this room. Give yourselves five years. You, your kids, your grandparents, and your goldfish will know about <laughs> monetary policy and what it means to have a dollar backed by thin air or a dollar backed by something like proof of work. Yeah. Awesome stuff. I just so, have to say that on. the one of the reasons the poll was so severely skewed towards people not using Bitcoin is selection bias. We mm. did the poll in the UAE where the central bank of the UAE has a robust dollar denominated oil backed foreign reserves and yeah. can support the value of the dirham to keep it pegged to the dollar. So there is almost zero exchange rate risk because we're very lucky that the UAE central bank can do this. However, if we did the same poll in Zimbabwe, or if we did it in Pakistan even, or if we did it in the UK, yeah. <laughs> we would definitely, potentially, I want to say definitely, but I can nuance that, we wouldn't have had the same reaction mm. because here we can use the Durham yeah. completely safely. We've never had to think, oh my God, what yeah. would happen if I wake up tomorrow and half of my inventory stock is yeah. wiped out because of some random decision that happened so, in the middle of the night. Yeah, it's the same thing so in we, China. When I was living there as well, like people actually trust you know, the renminbi and like, they, they don't think anything will happen to it because China's the greatest country in the world, and, you know? Well, so, I, I, I want to yeah, bring I, back, I get what you mean for sure. I want to bring back to something yeah. that I think is very important. So it's very important to note that my views are my own and don't reflect that of, <laughs> of bit.com, my com my, a company that I founded that handles central bank digital currencies and works with central banks. Now, I will say this to end it on the, the initial question of what is programmable money. When I came up with the concept in 2014, 15 of creating a digital dollar, it was exactly for one reason. It was to allow a safe interface to occur between that of cash and that of Bitcoin. Because I couldn't take the cash in my bank account today and interface it with mm. something like Bitcoin. But now with a central bank digital currency, there's a direct ability for the two to talk. A bridge can now exist. Yeah. So I think that's pretty important to mention mm. that the advent of central bank digital currencies came about so that you can have more innovation around the interoperability of other currency systems, which today simply doesn't yeah. exist. Absolutely. All right. So on that note, before we end things off, does anyone have any questions for our panelists? Hi, my name is Jahan Zeb and I work in the cards and payments industry. 
My question is, in terms of Bitcoin that we are supporting so much right now, the recent surge in 2017 that took the Bitcoin up to $14,000 for a single Bitcoin, and that's now back to $7,000. Hasn't that wiped off the money from people's accounts? And how do you restore confidence in that? Sure. I mean, if that's one way to look at it, right? If you want to pick and choose a timeline and you want to say, hey, let's look at these 12 months in particularly, why don't you be fair and expand the timeline? Look at any inflation-based fiat currency. Expand the timeline over the last 30 years of the US dollar. Mm. Have you ever heard your mom tell you, I used to buy a Coca-Cola for 10 cents? How is that working out today? Now, if you're going to go and pick and choose a timeline, once again, Bitcoin five years ago was $1. Three years ago, it was $200. Today, Bitcoin's at $8,000. So yes, some people did get burnt, but if you expand the timelines on a long-term based deflationary asset, talk to me in two years and tell me about the price of Bitcoin when that limited scarce asset, which is backed by mathematics and provable by mathematics, tell me about the price then. And then we can have a much more useful conversation. But I will say that people did get burnt. People who were chasing uh, profits. And that is the wrong way to think about Bitcoin. If you're going after it, and looking at this solution as a way to generate money for yourself from a profit yielding venture, then you're going to get burnt. But if you're looking at this as a long-term investment strategy of where you'd use something like average cost buying and you didn't go and plummet all of your money, by the way, it's a very silly concept to put all of your money into any asset class. Something like investing in fairly in land, gold, and diversifying your portfolio, this is what's frugal and expected in investments. Mm -hmm. If you went and got a mortgage on your house and put it all in Bitcoin, you deserve to be burnt. And that's the truth. So I will say that people did get burnt and it wasn't 14,000, it was actually 20,000. 20, yeah. <laughs> I will say that that did occur and it will probably happen many times over the next couple of years. But if you're in this for the short term prospects of it, then you're going to either have a short term gain or short term loss. And the truth is, You've only lost if you exited your position. A more frugal and a smarter position would be on a falling price is to retake a position and to continue and take that position with a fair amount every single month. And that's average cost buying. So someone like myself, every time the price falls, I buy more. And, and this is not investment advice. Everyone, you know, don't invest anything you can't afford to lose. And that's just generally what you want to take away from that. Now, the advent of what Bitcoin really represents is the ability for people to define their own freedom within monetary policy and to interface with a system that doesn't control them from a centralized perspective. Mm -hmm. So we've never seen that before. It's the world's largest alternative monetary system today. And it's the world's largest supercomputer backed system today. So I would say that expand your horizon to five years timeline and then judge it based on that, as opposed to 12 months or 24 months. And that's a much better way of gauging it. Does that answer your question? I just want to add, sorry, I just want to add one thing. The reason that there was money wiped out from the massive fluctuations that you mentioned was because of the supply and demand dynamics of that particular currency, which is fair. If more and more people want to buy Bitcoin and the value goes up, that's logical or if more and more people want to sell Bitcoin and the value goes down, that's logical. That's what we'd expect in the, any market. However, if 
the risk or the money was wiped out because of a decision which was not related to your market, which was not related to the Bitcoin market, which was based on a political decision, that's when it's a real sort of an actual loss. Because the supply and demand dynamics of your particular property didn't change, but a political decision just wiped out the value of your property, for example. Of course, if more and more people build houses and few people invest in houses, that would be real supply-demand dynamics affecting the value of your property. But a centralized decision, which has nothing to do with property, affected the value of your property. That's the real loss. That's the real, that's exchange rate risk, which is irrelevant to the actual dynamics of your market, which in Bitcoin, yes, of course, the market dynamics will change, but it's relevant to the particular commodity you're talking about. So I want to mention one more thing that I think is important for the audience. Bitcoin's price could potentially fall again, and it probably will. We can probably see $6,000, $3,000 of Bitcoin. Yeah, I hope it does, yeah. I, I hope it does too, to be honest, Ahmed. <laughs> I really hope it does because I would like to retake my positions. <laughs> yeah. It's now... That's just my personal belief. But something to gauge it on, on why I want to do this, is we've never seen a healthier network today. Bitcoins, the, the thing that backs Bitcoin, the proof of work, the mining process, what I consider to be the true north of the health of the network, it's quadruple, it's fractions. I mean, it's, it's multitudes greater today than it was in 2017. The network is extremely healthy today. The amount of wallet users has grown by magnitudes. The amount of companies, you have almost every Fortune 500 company building on top of a blockchain solution. Two years ago, if I told you JP Morgan was going to launch JP Coin, you would have laughed at me. Today, that's happening. Two years ago, if I told you Facebook was going to do Libra, you would have laughed at me. Today, it's happening. So what we're seeing is Bitcoin's going mainstream. Something we've been wishing for for the last eight, nine, ten years when, it was, when the white paper by Satoshi was released, the network has never been healthier. So yes, the price has fallen. But if you're gauging the market on its price, then you're looking at the wrong thing. Look at the mining difficulty and then come and talk to me. Yeah, we should do a, a podcast about the metrics and comparing it. Yeah, that, that's a good idea. Yeah. Any other questions? Sorry about being so passionate. <laughs> All right, we've got one over there. Maybe I missed it, but what are your thoughts on on Libra? Are you are you? It goes against a lot of decentralization theories, right? But what's your thoughts on it? it obviously, it's good for adoption, but I just want to get your overall thoughts. I, on it. I think it's great. You know, it's it's the two can exist. You know, you you we finally have. You know what? I'll tell you this: Libra is forcing central banks to wake up and smell the coffee. That's number one. Number two, Libra is forcing the conversation on corporation-based private money. Number three, Libra is forcing cryptocurrencies into mainstream. And number four, Libra is taking the heat off of Bitcoin and putting it on themselves. So that's my position on it. Yeah. It actually helps Bitcoin. I totally Dramatically. Agree. Yeah. I completely agree with what my colleague has said. But in Facebook's statement today as to why PayPal left part of the Libra Association was change is hard. So yeah, Libra might become a widely adopted currency, but it will be hard and there will be winners and losers. So well, one more thing to add, right? If you just look at the history of privatization, you see that national airlines have been privatized. You've seen actual telecom companies have been privatized. You've seen sort of many different utilities being privatized in the Western world. 
but only money, the concept of sovereign money has not yet been privatized. It's still a utility, it's still public good. Before, all the services that we had were all public goods subsidized by the government in one way or another. It's been privatized so much except money. And so we haven't sort of seen a private form of money yet, particularly issued by corporations. And so if Libra succeeds, it's amazing because it means that every other company will do it. If it fails, somebody will come out and do it properly. I hope Libra is successful. Yeah. I wish them all the luck in the world. They have a great team behind them right now, the development team, the policy team. And at the end of the day, you know who wins? We do. The end user wins. We have more options. This is great. We've, we've seen the disruption of communication with things like the internet. Now we get to see disruption of money. Yeah. Bring it on. It empowers us all. Did you guys know that if you were to drive to Oman, it would take like four hours, but to send money from here to Oman takes a day or two, right? <laughs> Through the banking system. So why, why does that? Can't you just send it within minutes, right? Like, like a WhatsApp message. So I guess that's part of the, the ultimate vision. All right. If somebody wants to get in touch with you guys, how could they get in touch? I work at DFF. I'm in Area 2071 <laughs> on the ground floor, so you can find me. Uh, you can find me on the internet. Just search my first name, my last name on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn profile is there and you could just send me a message. I usually reply to uh, some. So shoot me a message as long as it's useful and, and we can have a great conversation. I'm always interested. Awesome. Thank you so much. Before I close off, I just want to say that if you guys haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, Encrypted, please do. It's easily searchable on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere. So we release weekly shows on blockchain and cryptocurrencies. So we really hope you guys found this useful. And can we give a round of applause to our amazing panelists? And also thank you as well to Nisha and the rest of the Future Blockchain Summit team for giving us this opportunity. So thanks a lot, guys. Oh,